0: You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 75 for December 23rd, 2015. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we bring on two guests to talk about faith in archaeologists. Not faith in archaeology, faith in archaeologists. How do people that are religious work their beliefs into archaeology, which can sometimes be contradictory? We explore these concepts and more on today's show. So grab some holiday treats and a stiff glass of eggnog, because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today are Sonia in Utah. Hi. Doug in Scotland. Hello. And Chris in Ridgecrest. Howdy. And we may have Steven up in Calgary joining us later. He was supposed to be on. There might be a a time zone issue, but if he just jumps into the conversation at some point later on, this will serve as his introduction. Um, Before we move on to our show topic, though, I just wanted to briefly mention, as I did in the opening intro, that this is our 75th episode. And I thought that was... It it kind of snuck up on me um, that I just realized when I was prepping the notes for the show today that this is 75 episodes. Our, Our first episode was on February 11th, 2013. And we had just uh, Sarah Head and uh, Doug Rox McQueen on that episode. And for the most part, our panelists have stayed pretty consistent. We've added a couple people recently, Sonia and Chris, um, and we've lost a few other people for various reasons. Um, Sarah because she's doing a new podcast, Archaeological Fantasies, which is really good. Check it out on the APN. So, um, and I thought we were going to lose Doug to another podcast, but but uh, that podcast ended up losing Doug. So, <laughs> um. Doug, Doug, do you have any uh, any any profound words of wisdom after 75 episodes of the podcast? Not that you've been on every single one of them, but you've been on most of them.
2: Profound words? Yeah, that's probably <laughs> not going to come from me. Um, I, I really feel like you should have Russell or Steven d- should be on this podcast to give us uh, some propo- profound words.
1: I know. I know. I know. Or Doug, uh, Bill. Bill would have some, definitely some words. I don't know if they'd be profound, but he'd have words. So profane, maybe. Yeah, he'd probably have some profane words. Yeah, he probably rent.
2: I would just say, um, I'm, Thank you, everyone, for listening for the last three years. It's, it's been really great doing the podcast.
1: Awesome, awesome. It doesn't feel like three years either. It's, it's It doesn't feel like that at all. Of course, we only do this every two weeks. Um. All right. Well, let's get into our topic for today. Uh, as I mentioned at the very top of the show, um, this about this is about faith in archaeologists, not necessarily faith in archaeology, like, like studying faith in archaeology as an archaeologist, but, but archaeologists that have some level of, of faith or, or religiousness about them, however you want to term that. Um, and we've got a couple guests on, and rather than me butcher their biographies, I'll just introduce them, and then we'll get into this show. So Belinda, we'll start with you. Um, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what makes you a good fit for this, for this topic?
3: I'm happy to be here. I'm Sister Belinda Monahan. I am um, a Benedictine sister of Chicago and an archaeologist. I always wanted to be an archaeologist. I did my first field season at 17, uh, finished up my degree in anthropology in 2000, and have worked at least part-time as an archaeologist. Uh, the faith thing or the religion thing kind of snuck up on me. I took my final vows as a Benedictine sister of Chicago Uh, just over a year ago, December 14th, 2014. Um, And that's probably all you need to know
4: about me for now.
1: Okay, I'm sure we'll get into more of that later. So Matt or Matthew, which one do you prefer? Um, Let's let's go to you next. What's your story?
4: Well, most people call me Matt. And uh, like Belinda, I wanted to be an archaeologist just about as soon as uh, dinosaurs kind of wore out in my mind (laughs) as a kid. I transferred fairly easily to archaeology. Uh, did a field school actually in junior high, um, uh, and uh, then went on and got a BA in uh, archaeology or anthropology in 1990. Uh, Shovel bummed around for a little while, went back to graduate school, uh, did uh, my thesis research in the Andes, actually focusing on um, ritual and the formation of complex societies and then um, uh, moved on from there to work as a principal investigator uh, for a large contracting firm, uh, con- environmental consulting firm. Did that for a uh, number of years, uh, like seven years. Then uh, I was deputy Shippo uh, in Utah for archeology span for a while, for like two years. And right around that time, I was, you know, this, uh, my own faith background, which I also had since I was a kid, was really coming back, and I felt called to uh, uh, serve in ordained ministry. So um, I left working archaeology full-time. I got a Master of Divinity. Uh, I was ordained uh, a priest in the Episcopal Church uh, three years and four days ago, and I currently serve as rector, uh, which is a a term in the Episcopal Church for the priest in charge of a parish uh, for St. John's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas.
1: Okay, well, let's. Um, I, I want to start with you, Matt, since you just got done um, getting us your bio there. Do you think, let me know how, to, how to phrase this, how has your um, faith, uh, and, and you said it was starting to kind of come back a little bit later in later years before you started, uh, you know, before you left archaeology, um, which kind of indicates to me that it had kind of maybe lost focus a little bit for a little while and then started to come back. Correct me if I'm wrong on that, but how do you think your, um, your faith has affected you uh, as an archaeologist or your work as an archaeologist, if at all?
4: Well, you know, that's, what's interesting about that is I was, so I was raised um, in an uh, Episcopal household where my father actually taught at Episcopal uh, schools and boarding schools through my youth, so I was very immersed in it. And I went off to college, and like a lot of college students, I kind of drifted away. And I would actually say that, to some degree, I did, because uh, anthropology and the study of ritual and religion, I, at least in my at age 18 or 19 or so, I thought, aha, well, see now, I I see the man behind the curtain, and uh, this is this religion stuff is obviously done uh, by by these interesting other people, and it's fascinating. But you know, um, you know, I, I think I'm too um uh you know, uh too much of an observer to be a participator. And so uh I did kind of drift away for a long time but um and wasn't actively going to church much except maybe Christmas and Easter. Uh and uh the uh interesting thing though is it never really entirely left. I mean like I mentioned I I when I went back to graduate school, I was really interested in religion and ritual and the formation of complex societies. It was just sort of part of my interest area. Uh, and what began happening is, um, as I started working as a professional archeologist, I mean, it's a, that, there it becomes actually a simple story. I just felt like something was missing from my life and felt, uh, uh, and as I pondered it, and well, I mean, a, a good touchstone is when I was working in the Andes um, and on this little island in Lake Titicaca and uh, in this little village that very much practiced traditional it's a native Aymara religion um, in depth, uh, I realized, oh, I really miss this. You know, I, I think this is cool, the way their faith and their life is integrated completely in everything that they do. It's just the problem was it wasn't my theology, so it didn't really speak to my soul. Uh, but then I started realizing, wait a minute, I have this gift, too. Um, you know, I was, I was raised Episcopalian and I started going back to church and really investigating my faith. And, and, uh, uh, that's, that's kind of what led me to kind of go back with a vengeance in the end, uh, and become a priest.
1: Nice. Nice. Uh, how about you, Belinda? How's, how has your religion affected your work as an archeologist?
3: Um, Well, like Matt, I was raised in a a fairly religious household. I was raised Catholic, uh, and again, like Matt, it wasn't until grad school that I drifted away for only about two or three years, and then I started going back to church, but church was something I did on Sundays, and it didn't seem to have much of an effect on the rest of my life, Um, and then, for various reasons, I started going to church more frequently and praying more frequently. Um, And what I I was thinking as you asked the question was, I feel as though being a person of faith um, makes me a better person, no matter what I'm trying to do. Um, And so I pay attention more to people and to things and to um, kind of patterns. Um, I love looking at patterns in data uh, that just, and so I, I feel like as I pay more attention to my relationship with God, I'm also able to pay better attention to all of these other things.
1: You know, that's interesting that you say that, because I was actually just having a conversation with someone last night about this. Um, uh, real quick before I proceed, though, I'm I'm open with my belief or lack of belief structure. I'm an atheist. I, I pretty much have been my whole life. Um, I mean, my family, I remember going to church when I was a really young, young kid, and my parents aren't necessarily atheists, but they never really you know religion and going to church wasn't really a big factor in our lives let's just put it that way and so I've been always that way and I've on I'm currently on the executive board of the Reno Freethinkers here in Reno and you know we do a lot of uh, secular events and things like that around town and science based events and things like that so I've had a lot of these um, conversations um and and one thing I ask people and I'll I'll address this to you Belinda, because you just mentioned it I've heard other people say to me as well that their faith allows them to you know be more understanding with their other relationships and 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 see things in a different way and stuff like that my question is do you really do you need that you know do, in your guys' opinion do you need some sort of faith like that to really have that kind of understanding because i know i've talked to people that think that yes you do you can't i mean there's people obviously that think you can't even be a moral human being without having faith um, they think they're 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 tied hand in hand um, I obviously don't believe that. I feel like I'm a fairly moral human being. But um, w- what do you think, Belinda? Do you think that uh, it, it enhanced your understanding of that, but do you think that that was maybe a requirement for like you in particular?
3: I think for me in particular, it was. Uh-huh. Um, I think I need the relationship with God in order to become who I can be.
1: Well, and that's, uh, you know, everybody's different. Matt?
4: Well, I, I guess on, on the personal level, I, I think I, I for me personally, I feel like I'm more who I am when when I'm in relationship with God. Mm-hmm. But to get to your question about does everybody need that, um, I, uh, I don't know. I wouldn't say so. I mean, I think you, you know, it's clear people can be uh, very good uh, ethical, principled, moral people uh, building their ethics uh, without – Having to set it on any uh, particular um, Christian or non Christian theology. Um, so, you know, that's obviously very possible. What I would say in my experience of practicing faith, of participating in faith communities, is being in a faith community is going to put concepts like concern for others, concern for the least among us, concern for justice, concern for creation and the environment. It's going to put that, I think, in a Uh, When done right, it's going to put that in your forefront all the time. You're going to be hearing about it on Sunday. You're going to be reading about it in the text that you return to over and over again. If you're a praying person, you're going to be returning to those ideas and and thoughts in your prayer. So I think it is a, a, for people, it can be a useful practice. But do you, you know, and so if you don't, you know, um, I'm guessing there must be other things you do to help you uh, keep in that practice. Yeah, so just sort of a, a quick question. How, is, uh,
2: how has your faith been accepted by your fellow archaeologists uh, in general? Have you received very positive feedback, neutral feedback, negative feedback,
4: or all of the above? You want to go first, Belinda, because you're still very much practicing as an archaeologist. I, I'm pretty much full time a, a, a priest.
3: Sure. I I was actually rather surprised at how well um, my faith was received by uh, fellow archaeologists. Entering religious life was a huge step. Uh, And I was very nervous uh, about announcing it to people. Uh, And the people with whom I work have been, to me, amazingly supportive. Uh, My dissertation advisor, who is also currently my boss, came to my final vows. Uh, People I work with in the field in Armenia have consistently asked about uh, what I do in the monastery and how my life is spent. Um, So I I have been, as I say, very pleasantly surprised at how supportive people have been.
4: You know, I've 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 been sitting thinking, well, Belinda answered what kind of experience I had, Uh, uh, and I would say, first of all, there's there's more archaeologists than you might think who who are practicing. Some form of faith or another, and um, and so uh, you know all all those uh, folks were extremely supportive. Um, I would say, you know, an an interesting thing popped into my head is that after I gave a uh, a paper at a professional conference, actually, while I was considering. Uh, starting the process that you have to go through to become a priest in the Episcopal Church, uh, somebody came up to me after a paper and said, you know, I think you missed your calling. You probably should have been a preacher. Um, <laughs> and it was a paper that I had pretty much decided I needed to preach in order to convince people uh, of what I was trying to convey. And so, uh, so in some ways, there have been some archaeologists who kind of encouraged me, whether they knew it or not, uh, along the path. And I'm actually sitting here. I can't think of any Hostility from archaeologists. I've had some hostility from some other folks uh, who, um, uh, you know, were good friends from college or um, that sort of thing, um, but uh, who just could not believe that I would do such a thing or be faithful and had a, a kind of a narrow, limited view of what religion and faith was. I sort of assumed that I was going to not believe in evolution anymore or something like that. And and we're very hostile about that. But, um, uh, most archeologists I've found are either like, Oh, okay. Or, Oh, that's interesting. You know?
1: Right. Yeah. I understand the preaching your paper thing. I feel like people think I'm, uh, constantly preaching about digital archeology span and using tablets in the field, (laughs) but, uh, (laughs) but that's another story entirely. (laughs) Sonia.
5: Oh, well, you know, I, um, I found that when I first, um, uh, when I first came and started working as an archaeologist professionally, I had a little bit of pushback from some of the people that I was working in the field with. Um, they they weren't ridiculing me as a person of faith. Um, I'm a Missouri Synod Lutheran. Um, but they were um, challenging whether or not, um, like Matt said, whether or not I believed in creationism or evolution, Mm -hmm. or they were asking me if I really truly believed that the earth was 6,000 years old (laughs) or, you know, just a lot of questions that as a scientist, I go, well, that's kind of the ridiculous. Why would I think that? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a scientist. Um, I, I, Always really, like Matt and Belinda gotten a very positive feedback and in fact know quite a few archaeologists who are people of faith. They just don't advertise
6: it. Right. Yeah, I've got a question, I think probably more for Belinda than Matt since uh, Matt, you had mentioned that you're, you're not as active in the archaeological research. Uh, but my question is, how has your, uh, your practice and profession of faith, Impacted your work as an archaeologist or as an anthropologist?
3: I'm I'm not quite sure what you mean. My practice of faith. Can Can you kind of unpack the question?
6: Uh, yeah, I guess to unpack uh, has has your faith or your worldview changed how you uh, approach? archaeological or anthropological research, um, namely in in studying non-Christian cultures?
3: No, I don't think so. I I don't think it affects how I approach cultures. I think um, when I sit down uh, and see patterns in the data or see what the data are telling me about people, uh, I'm more likely to think, I'm more likely to actually think about the people and marvel at the variety of people in the world, uh, in past and present, uh, than I was before faith became such a central part of my life. Um, But I don't think that it affects uh, how I sit down or the analyses I sit down and do or um, the questions I choose to address or or how I address them, if if that makes any sense. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
6: Yeah, definitely. Uh, the only the only reason I ask that, and this isn't, um, you know, this isn't a, a point of conflict ag- against either of you, but I'm sure you've encountered this uh, through anthropological readings. But you know, in in critical social theory, there's uh, the need to kind of express one's own personal biases, and so um, in critical social theory you're supposed to acknowledge any ideology that you may hold that could impact, um, a bias on the study that you have. And so I, I think that, you know, that's not necessarily directed at faith. I think that's directed at just about anything that we could study. Um, you know, whether we happen to hold to a certain economic principle or, you know, certain political organization, stuff like that. Those are the kind of things that, critical social theory could say that, uh, impact our, uh, ability to interpret past cultures. But I, I really liked your answer in that, you know, you, you've made an effort to, you know, that, that just doesn't impact how you, uh, approach other cultures. And I think that it just calls for mindfulness.
4: Yeah, I, I would probably agree thinking back when I was, uh, a, you know, not necessarily a priest, but practicing archaeology as a faithful Episcopalian. I mean, to me, the, the questions, the data were generated by anthropological theory, anthropological research, other researchers. Um, and my focus was on the, the, the research areas I was interested in. And, and um, you know, in uh, and, and many of these areas, you know, mobility, stone tool use, uh, in the West, that those types of things that, uh, it, uh, it was hard. I would be hard pressed to figure out exactly what my bias might be as a, a Christian, um, in those situations. It was just sort of like, I'm interested in, in obsidian use, uh, and, uh, and, uh, transportation and, and procurement over a landscape and, and whether, uh, you know, Particular theory of Christ's atonement really didn't have anything to do with any of that. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to continue this in just a minute after we hear about some other fantastic podcasts from the Archaeology Podcast Network. Back in a minute.
0: undergraduate majoring in archaeology or a field tech that's wondering where to go next the go dig a hole podcast is for you a new series on the archaeology podcast network host christopher and andy answer a wide range of questions from those new to the field with help from crm academic and public sector archaeologists. This show is a companion to the blog GoDigAHole.com and tackles questions from readers and listeners to provide a toolkit aimed to help you get a leg up in the competitive field of archaeology. Subscribe to the show via the Archaeology Podcast Network, iTunes, or wherever you get
1: podcasts. Alright, we are back and... Matt, I've got a question for you. Um, I'm a business owner. I own a CRM firm here in Sparks, Nevada, and I've only been about three years, and I've only done uh, two really big projects. And the question I have for you, I didn't really have to deal with this question um, yet on these projects, but I imagine as a business owner, I will end up having to deal with this at some point. But my question to you is, and and I'm asking you because I know know who you worked for in the past, (laughs) and I know you've been in some high... Yeah, well, you know, that Sony was mentioning it, um, and, and I know, um, you know, you've been in some leadership positions and things like that, and not that I would ever want to do this, even as an atheist, I don't ever plan on, um, you know, trying to find a way to discriminate who I hire based on their religious beliefs, right? I mean, not only is that illegal, but it's unethical. And, you know, that being said, though... Um, In our particular profession, like, for instance, as part of the Reno Freethinkers here, we did a whole video series last year with um, a gentleman who's a young earth creationist and a preacher. He was at a church here in Sparks, Nevada, but now he's up in Idaho. And having some conversations with him, who is a a definite, you know, he believes 100% everything the Bible has to say, without question. I mean, if he doesn't understand it, he just assumes he's not supposed to understand it, and he, he moves on. And... I mean he's a young earth creationist and we did a whole 2 hour video on just Noah's ark. It was fascinating hearing his worldview on some of this stuff. So as a business owner, I'm not even really allowed to ask, I don't think, like what religion somebody is and what level of belief they have, but how do you how do you reconcile that as an archaeologist and especially as a leader when somebody could be coming in writing up site records mentioning 10, 12,000 year old projectile points that they may not even interpret as 10 12,000-year-old projectile points because their worldview only goes back, in the extreme case, 6,000 years. But I don't just mean young earth creationists. I mean other people whose faith would affect their archaeological interpretation of something. Um, was that ever a concern for you, or, or how would you even even deal with that, knowing your beliefs?
4: Wow. I uh, So you're kind of positing this <laughs> scenario where you're hiring somebody that you you know happen to know uh doesn't believe in radiocarbon dating. Um, uh, is is, is Somewhat, that right? Yeah. Is that kind of what we're
1: causing? <laughs> but I, that's that's part of it. The dating is part of it, but also their entire worldview, depending on how, for lack of a better term, fundamentalist they are about their religion, you know, uh, they might just think everything we're finding is completely... You know, off the mark. The all the archaeological interpretation we have about a particular region might be completely way off based on their religious beliefs.
4: Yeah, I'm not even sure why a person like that would go into archaeology. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's...
1: I, I don't know either. I worked I worked with <laughs> I a Mormon totally in agree. Utah that had some interesting thoughts on Native Americans.
4: Uh, oh, okay, I, I I see what you mean. Okay. There, there can be yeah. things like that. I mean, ultimately, I think that working as a professional archaeologist. Uh, whether, whether you're an academic archaeologist or a, or a cultural resource management archaeologist, I mean, you're working within, you're going to have to be comfortable somehow working within the, the sort of um, profession's accepted standards and things like that. To me, it's, it's a matter of that person um, making their own piece with it. And, and for you as a, as a business owner, but also as a principal investigator, I mean, yeah, they need to produce, uh, stuff that is, that it's going to fly and, and withstand peer review within the profession. So, you know, if, if they're not because of their religious beliefs, then, you know, they're simply, um, uh, uh, not, not doing the work that you've asked them to do. Um, and, and mm-hmm. so, uh, I, I guess, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not a, such a believer in religious freedom that I think it, it gives you the freedom to be able to do any job, even if that job contradicts, you know, what you believe, right? The, the, the job has to adjust to your religious freedom. I don't believe that.
1: You know, if somebody were um, not able to reconcile their their beliefs with, with what was our expected interpretation, of what we were doing, is that, I mean, if you let them go because of that, aren't you firing them for their religious beliefs? And isn't that illegal?
4: Gee, I don't, you know, I haven't sat down and tried to figure out the the implications of that. I mean, I'd be talking to a good human resources uh, person Yeah. because, you know, to me, uh, you know, putting on a site form, you know, this Paleo-Indian point is less than 6,000 years old because, you know, this Clovis point is less than 6,000 years old because that's the upper limit for for how old the Earth is. (laughs) You can start saying this is just not this is not acceptable work (laughs) Uh, within the profession. Um, But, you know, I I think that you would want to, you probably would want to tread lightly and figure out how to document everything very carefully. I I would talk to less, uh, less a priest than a human resources
1: person. (laughs) Nice. Nice. Indeed. That's kind of what my thinking on it was. Um...
4: Now, if you felt horribly guilty about it and you really wanted to, you know, confess then I'm your man. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, <that> sounds good
2: <laughs> yeah so i was i was thinking back to to basically all my field days when we used to do 10 days on four days off and stuff like that obviously you'd be working a sunday or you know depending on your religion a friday or saturday or you know um stuff like that and in my experience there wasn't or there was no sort of organized setup or anyone, as far as I know, that I worked with um, regularly attending churches and stuff like that. And, you know, when you're out in the field, you could be in the next state over and stuff. Um, have you guys, with your faith and everything, have you found it difficult um, working in archaeology? You know, sometimes you're on a dig for a month and stuff. Um, to be able to sort of practice, did you just do sort of self-reflective stuff or was... Did you find churches in your same denomination where you were working and stuff?
3: Currently, I work in Armenia, and uh, uh, Roman Catholic churches in Armenia are few and far between. Uh, So I spend about a month every year in Armenia, and I simply do private prayer. I try to maintain morning and evening prayer, which usually I pray as a community, as part of my community. And I try to maintain it on my own. Uh, it's harder to do it on my own, I will admit that, and I do miss having a, a faith community around me. This, uh, I guess it was in 2013 I discovered that there is a community of Roman Catholic uh, women in the capital city, uh, and I got a chance to pray with them, but that was the first time Uh, that I've been to Roman Catholic prayer in Armenia, and I've been working there since 2002. Um, So sometimes you simply rely on your own personal faith rather than on community prayer.
4: You know, when I look back on it uh, as well, I mean, I I did plenty of 10 and fours. And yeah, it was a drag to to miss church on Sunday, definitely. uh, And often very hard to find Uh, An Episcopal Church uh, in Nevada or Wyoming or things, although they're there, they're definitely there, but not necessarily, you know, near where we were working. Um, And and I, uh, you know, when you're working ten and four, you you got to be in the truck at six or seven in the morning or whatever it is on Sunday anyway. Uh, And so, actually, quite a bit like Belinda, I just kept uh, morning and evening prayer, what's called the daily office, or or sort of uh, daily prayer practice that is uh, both part of uh, Roman Catholicism and the Episcopal Church, and and I would come back uh, at the end of the day and uh, clean up and and pray the daily office, and then I'd get up a little extra early in the morning and pray the daily office, a uh, morning prayer before I went out in the field, and and that's how I kind of kept connected, uh, and you know uh, fortunately. Uh, I, I never had a situation where it was going on for, you know, more than a month or two. Um, and so it wasn't like I was totally disconnected. And did you ever end up uh, sort of, I guess, forming any
2: sort of faith communities inside your, you know, the different projects you've worked on or crews you've been with or anything like that? Or has it been sort of a very individualistic sort of thing when you're working in archaeology?
4: Well, I guess I, uh, I'll go ahead and jump in And the simple answer is no, didn't form any faith communities. I, I was sort of really careful to not be trying to touch on something so personal and sensitive to, uh, with, with other people on, that I was going to have to work in close quarters with for 10 days, <laughs> you know, as, as you guys know what it's like. What is true uh-huh. is that when I was working with people who I knew um, uh, were faithful, like I've worked with Belinda. I've worked with Sonia. We would talk. We would find time to talk uh, about yep. these sorts of things together, and I can remember lots of good conversations. And I think, in a way, we were kind of supporting each other. At Agreed. least, it was supporting me. <laughs>
6: <laughs>
4: Agreed,
5: Matt.
6: Yeah, I've got a question for I guess uh, Matt, Sonia, and Belinda. Has your work in archaeology and your uh, you know your readings and your research in anthropology? um done anything for your faith like do you feel like you have any insights that you've gained personally in your faith through working in archaeology that you know maybe most other believers might not have access to
5: I I think it has um I think it's given me the ability to have a um reasoned arguments um justifying things it's called apologetics it's something that I was always interested in um in the church um and i also felt uh feel very strongly about uh, church history as well um when i hear you know people talking about oh well there's no documentation of jesus christ anywhere in history and i was like well that's not true there's josephus <laughs> and he was around in the 1st century so mm-hmm. what's you know uh, <laughs> It, it, it I think it's actually um, my work has strengthened my faith, and my faith has strengthened my
1: work. And he thought the world was only 4,000 years old. <laughs> 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 At least something's changed. I just got that joke. Yeah. <laughs> um, Belinda, Matt? You want to go, Belinda?
3: Sure, I was thinking, uh, as you asked that question, last year or the year before, I was studying Catholic social teaching and I had a moment where I was sitting with the woman who was teaching me and I, I had a moment where I thought, oh, wait a minute, what this document is saying is it's a critique of capitalism as we practice it today. And it's, it's presenting a different way of living. And I had a moment because it seems so natural, and I, I suddenly had a moment where I thought, "But that's what I'm doing in archaeology—is presenting different political systems or different economic systems." And but it, it just struck me as very that I it hadn't occurred to me that that's what Catholic social teaching is doing—is presenting a different way of living in the world. Uh, and so it, to me that was kind of the moment where archaeology and faith came together and the archaeology, what I've been saying in archaeology all along, suddenly illuminated uh, what I was trying to do with my faith.
1: Okay. You know, I've got a question for you guys. And and Belinda, maybe I'll I'll throw this to you since you're doing archaeology right now. Uh, You're an archaeologist right now. Have you ever encountered a situation, um, whether recently or whenever, uh, during archaeological research that you were directly involved in that, you know, you... You uncovered something or an idea or something like that that was counter to your faith and your beliefs
3: no, I haven't and I'm not sure what I could encounter or uncover that would be counter to my faith
1: okay well, that's interesting. How about you Matt uh no
4: uh, uh, again, working entirely in the new world uh, it uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, the odds are and and uh um, I, like Belinda, I also, um, have a hard time imagining what would, particularly because, you know, archaeology, as we know, is much better at describing, uh, big patterns of behavior over a long period of time rather than specific people events or moments. Although it can do that, it's just much more rare. Um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, uh, it would be hard for me to imagine, um, uh, Encountering something uh, that that would overturn it, although what I would say is I can imagine uh, archaeological discoveries—not in my field—I didn't work in Near Eastern archaeology or biblical archaeology at all. I can imagine archaeological discoveries that would disprove a thing or two that that uh, was you know uh, disprove something stated in the Bible or something like that. I can I can imagine that, um, but. Since I don't take the Bible literally, it's hard for me to imagine it precipitating a crisis of faith.
1: Okay, I think that's the the key point. There is taking it taking it literally, because um, I mean, as a scientist, even though you're not directly involved in some of the biblical archaeology um, and some of the stuff that either you know confirms or denies things that are uh, accounted for in the Bible. Uh, I mean, as a scientist, you you could look objectively at the research and say, you know, give an opinion based on that. And if you're a literalist, I could imagine you'd have a a really hard problem with some of the stuff that's found. <laughs> well, it's yeah.
4: true. And in fact, I guess you, back to your first question about archaeology informing your faith. I mean, one of the things that mm-hmm. I do a lot of when I'm teaching is actually reining people in when they bring me something they think prove something out of the Bible that's, that's uh, I don't know where they get it, but in various and sundry places. And I usually have to say, well, we got to really rein this in and and you've got to understand, you know, dating, radiocarbon dating itself is probably not pre- precise enough to, even if you found the right thing to really, you know, answer this question, um, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. So I, I spend a fair amount of time sort of trying to help people be realistic in their expectations of archaeology uh, and faith <laughs> because, uh, again, um, the, the kinds of questions that you ask in faith, the kinds of questions you ask in archaeology, kind of uh, what you use as data are different things.
1: Okay, well, we're going to end our second segment here and come back in just a couple minutes and wrap this up. Back in a minute. <laughs>
0: Whether you're an undergraduate majoring in archaeology or a field tech that's wondering where to go next, the Go Dig a Hole podcast is for you. A new series on the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hosts Christopher and Andy answer a wide range of questions from those new to the field. With help from CRM, academic and public sector archaeologists. This show is a companion to the blog GoDiggerHole.com and tackles questions from readers and listeners to provide a toolkit aimed to help you get a leg up in the competitive field of archaeology. Subscribe to the show via the Archaeology Podcast Network, iTunes, or wherever you get podcasts.
6: Yeah, okay, so we're back, and uh, I've got a question for uh, Matt and Belinda. Um, it's the opposite of a question that was asked earlier about responses that you've received in archaeology. This question is, have you received any um, criticism or, or doubts from your fellow believers since you were practicing archaeology?
4: Well, I, I can say unequivocally no. Um, in fact, most of the folks uh, that I know and serve in the Episcopal Church Think it's pretty cool that that I have done archaeology, and I guess I, you know, I should give myself some credit. I still have a permit in Utah, so technically I can, I can practice, um, <laughs> and uh, I, I like to keep one up. and And so most people find it quite uh, cool and fascinating, uh, and uh, usually their their desperate hope is that. I will I will teach some biblical archaeology and the disappointment is like, no, I wasn't a biblical archaeologist and I'm <laughs> very careful to say I'm not really up on that. If you give me a technical report, I can read it and evaluate it, um, but, you know, I'm not, I, I don't, you know, don't expect me, just because I, I did archaeology doesn't mean I know archaeology everywhere.
6: Belinda, how about you? For
3: the most part, uh, people, Again, I think Matt said cool was the word Matt used, and people think it's really uh, exciting that I do archaeology. Uh, I recently was asked to give a talk about biblical biblical archaeology and wound up giving a talk about archaeology and call and vocation and all of um, those things mixed together. Um, My community has expressed some doubts as to whether I could make a living or earn uh, sufficient money, uh, whether I could fit it in as a ministry. Uh, within monastic life. Uh, I'm out in the field for about a month every year, um, and how I was going to work my research around community life uh, was a question that has come up. And most people, I've been able to do it for about seven years, and most people have said to me, you know, we think it works for you.
1: Yeah, yeah, Belinda, Belinda, I couldn't imagine wearing that nun habit while shovel testing in uh, Louisiana. That would just be... uh... (laughs) That would just that would just be terrible. <laughs> My kid does not wear a habit, so I just.
3: Oh okay. <laughs> yes, that will be unbearably hot. <laughs> <laughs> right,
1: <laughs> you can't even wear short sleeve shirts down there in the summertime. It's too hot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. You know, I want um, to. I want to take this a little bit uh, a little bit different, a little bigger um, of a question here. And, and Belinda, we'll start with you. Um, what impact, if any, do you think the uh, the sort of resurgence of fundamental beliefs uh, in this country is going to have an archaeology, and what I mean by that, I mean we're seeing in like the the whole political sphere. I mean, people are people are using religion as a as a. You know, as a political tool and as a, and almost as a weapon, not in like a terrorism sense, but you know, like as a, as a, as a thing to engage people with, and, and because of that, they're becoming more polarized on one side or the other, and 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 it seems like a little more fundamental. Do you think this is going to have an impact on archaeology or archaeologists moving forward, and the type of archaeologists will will have coming out of classes in the next, you know, five ten years if this continues?
3: I don't know whether it will have an impact on archaeologists and the way archaeologists are taught, although I imagine someone coming in from a high school that taught uh, creationism might have a hard time in a human evolution class. Uh, I wonder, too, about funding, uh, public sources of funding for archaeology and whether it will be more difficult for archaeologists to get funding uh, Mm. because of that's certain a good point beliefs, um,
1: or or whether that funding will will go away from the uh, you know from the federal side because of certain beliefs in, in Congress and things like that yeah yes.
4: yeah Matt what do you think uh, actually, I, uh, I actually a lot of sh- uh, shared uh, thoughts uh, with Belinda the uh, my the first thing that popped to my mind is you know National Science Foundation funding for archaeology feels like every Whenever it comes up again in the funding cycle, you always have to write letters in again to try to convince people that the pitiful amount that's given to uh, archaeology within the NSF is, is worthwhile and well spent. And, and I, I could see, you know, I would worry about particular people holding particular beliefs, gaining positions uh, of power on certain funding subcommittees and things like that that could do a lot of damage there. I would worry about that. Um, first and foremost, uh, more than almost anything else, because I think you know our our academic training systems for archaeology are, you know, for the most part, uh, funneling uh, funneling uh, trained anthropologists who, you know, the, who believe the paradigm that archaeology is operating under. Yeah. So this
2: is actually sort of taking back to something you said, Belinda, and I was really really intrigued when you were talking about. You know, you take a month off to sort of go dig in, in the Caucasus Mountains in that area and um, Armenia and whatnot, and then most of your rest of your time is monastic life. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? And generally, I guess, just to give a little guidance, um, what, what would be like your typical year of how you combine your archaeology sort of digging plus your monastic life?
3: first I have to say I'm not a cloistered monastic. Uh, So kind of a typical year for me is we just started uh, the liturgical year uh, at the beginning of December with Advent. um, And I spend most of the year with my community. We do morning and evening prayer together. um, And I work at my office in the monastery uh, doing research for most of the year. Uh, This past summer, I did not go out into the field, but I spend about a month Uh, every summer in the field, and I try to work that around uh, the Feast of St. Benedict is July 11th, and we often have community events around that day. So um, I'm probably very difficult to work with in the field in that I try not to be uh, in Armenia for that particular um, holiday, a holy day. So um, it's just a matter of scheduling field work for when I don't have community obligations. but for the most part, it doesn't look all that much different than it did before uh, I became a monastic.
5: So um, this is kind of a question for uh, for Belinda and Matt, um, uh, although Doug, Chris and the Chrises can uh, kind of chime in here <laughs> a little bit, Chris squared. Um, so uh, in. The Christian faith, which is basically the three that we're, that Matt, Belinda, and I are kind of are talking about right now, uh, emphasizes following the leader, mostly. Um, although, you know, uh, for me, I, I always thought that God gave me a brain, so I should use it and question everything, much to my parents' dismay. Um, how do we reconcile science with that, um, especially in a faith that emphasizes that, that following rather than leading? What do you guys think?
4: And when you mean leader, uh, Sonia, are you sort of talking about um, Uh, God being your ultimate leader? God, um, Bible, the Bible, (laughs)
5: Uh, the letter of the law versus the intent of the law. Um, You know, how how I I get a, earlier we were talking about um, the response that we've had from some of our our, our fellow Christians um, as scientists. Um, And many of the questions that I received were, how can you possibly be a scientist and a Christian? That doesn't make any sense. How can you be a good Christian? And in fact, one of my friends who is an atheist actually said, Sonia, you're a, you're a Lutheran, but you're a bad Lutheran. <laughs> and I just go, <laughs> you know, I, I, like I said, God gave me a brain. I use it. I question everything. I look at, uh, when I look, at, when I read the Bible, I look at the intent of that. What, what was written, was that meant to be a historical perspective on some, some issue that took place back then? Um, do I, you know, uh, I look at it from a scientific perspective. I can't know the mind of God. You know, I, I am not that great. I'm not that smart. I'm not omnipotent and omniscient. Um, I, 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 I can't know how long a day was um, in his eyes. So how can I possibly know, other than counting back uh, the ages of all of these old people in in the Bible, um, that the Earth is actually six thousand years old? When to me scientifically it appears to be four point six billion, or yeah, it just it doesn't make no sense. Um, I like science and I reconcile it that way. And I also tend to be more of a red line Christian than um, uh, an Old Testament Christian. Matt, Belinda, what do you think?
4: Well, you know what, I've been sitting thinking is that while I try my best as a person of faith to, uh, in my particular case, to follow Christ, to be a disciple, to do what I think I'm called to do, um, I also recognize my own limitations in being able to understand. uh, You know, I don't think. God, God has yet to just dictate to me something nice and clear, you know, um, and and, uh, and and give me. I just haven't been been blessed with any kind of uh, absolutely clear vision. And so, within my own with my own faith, uh, Episcopalianism, which is a branch of Anglicanism, we have always sort of had what we call a three-legged stool of how we uh, look at the world and integrate our faith with the world, and that is. Uh, scripture, tradition, and, and reason. Uh, and so, yes, we take scripture very seriously, but we also listen to other mem- tradition, we listen to other members of our church, of, uh, of the Christian faith, other theologians, other ideas, uh, and then also uh, we use our own minds. And so we're doing our best to to put that together, and ideally we're doing it within a practicing faith community where we're talking to other people so that, uh, we don't, you know, sort of go out, uh, and, uh, wander off into the weeds. Uh, we have, we have people to help us, uh, pull back in and make sure that what we're talking about is, uh, or proposing or developing as ideas of what we ought to be doing is, is, is not just something from our own ego. So, um, so to me, yes, I try to follow Christ as my leader, um, my ability to do that is shaped both by my community, by scripture, and, and by my own mind and reason. Like you, I, I think uh, I've been given a brain. There's a line in the psalm, we are marvelously made, um, and so I you know I think my brain is part of that too. Yeah.
3: And I don't think that, for me at least, uh, being a person of faith necessarily means that I can't also be a person of questions. Uh, in some ways, being a person of faith increases the number of questions I have. And it doesn't mean Absolutely. that I can ask these questions or grapple with them. It just gives me another tool. Uh, and I feel it makes me brave enough to attempt to engage with the big questions uh, in different ways uh, than I would be able to do if I weren't a person of faith. So it's not, I don't think the opposite of faith is certainty or the opposite of faith is uncertainty but that we're allowed to be uncertain as people of faith
4: oh um, yeah i think that's a really doubt. good point interesting yeah and uh, i totally agree with belinda there and even say uh, to some degree uh, you're you're talking about uh, paul Tillich, who's a, a mid-20th century theologian who often said that that doubt is a critical element of faith questioning and doubt because if you are taking this that seriously, if you're you know, Tillich talked about a God as your ultimate concern, that in which you place your 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 hopes and your you know, set as your foundation, then then you know, knowing our limitations, a little bit of doubt is going to be absolutely crucial to that.
5: Absolutely, and it causes you to question, ask more, ask more questions, investigate the answers. I mean, that's what a scientist does.
4: Yep. I, don't,
5: I don't necessarily follow the leader because I have to. Um, I, have, I have faith, but I also question things, and I want to know the answers. Information to me is so it, – it, it drives me.
3: And, and also, Matt said, the leader rarely gives – at least has rarely given me very clear directives. And so following mm-hmm. the leader means figuring out where the leader is, wants me to go.
4: Yeah, and that's that is an ongoing process. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, so in in the last uh, in the last five minutes here, I've got a question. I guess for um, Sonia, Belinda, and Matt, um, and Sonia, you were just made me think about this, so you can go first. Um, is there? I, I mean, it, it sounds like you and I probably have, and, and most of us here have the same beliefs, for lack of a better word, about. You know, the basic fundamental questions of science, um, you know, those aren't really in question. But the question I would have for you is, and for all of you is, is there something, maybe you can't even, maybe you don't even know what this something would be, but is there something that would really make you seriously sit back and question your beliefs um, if that, if that something were to, yeah, piece of information were to come into your possession? You know, do you think that piece of information exists or is your belief so strong that, it can overcome any anything, even again, for lack of a better term, evidence. Uh, I
5: I'm I'm a little speechless. Uh, I I don't really know how to answer that question because I don't.
1: It I, it might be impossible I to answer. I think it might be
5: um, because <laughs> I have I have no idea what that piece of evidence is. It's it's kind of like asking if something would happen. You know, if if, if that's completely unfathomable. I I don't know. I'm a person of strong faith, um, and I ask a lot of questions. Um, you know, I've, I've been through a lot, um, uh, but and, and I wasn't always with the church either. I left for a significant amount of time. But what I realized was that uh, my faith was always there, and um, I, 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 there were answers, and then there were things that made me question um, but those little things, they're not, they're little, they're not big. Um, I guess maybe if aliens showed up, uh, that could maybe that, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the answer to your question.
1: Aliens that were not made in God's image, for, for example. Well,
5: who says they're not? <laughs> that's the question.
1: Well, I mean, I <laughs> guess, I guess that's true. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, Belinda?
3: I I have to agree with Sonia. I um I, I don't think my faith is based on scientific evidence. Um, and I am I would be hard pressed to think of something that I could encounter in terms of scientific um, evidence that would make me question my faith.
1: hmm
4: Yeah, i I would I would sort of into that as well I can I you know I for me faith and and I think I'm quoting Paul here if I if I were more of a, a fundamentalist I could give you the chapter and verse but I uh, faith is uh, <laughs> um, is, a, is a belief in things unseen not in things seen so it's that's not I'm not setting my hope and my faith on things that I I see uh, however I mean as I was saying before I can Think of lots of individual things that would cause me to look at Scripture in a new way, uh, to uh, uh, you know uh, readjust my understanding. Uh, might might cause me to reevaluate um, my understanding of, of uh, you know, certain things in the Gospels. If uh, I you know, but it's the other thing I keep returning to is that a lot of these would have to be taking on very specific, like a specific person, a specific event. And archaeology often isn't real good at finding specific people and events. Um, so it's, it's at the same time that I'm trying to imagine. I can think, well, you know, always somebody could get lucky and find something uh, that, you know, would demonstrate that Paul was never in Corinth or something. Um, but, um, you know, then I would just have to readjust my understanding of, of those letters and their context.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah. Uh, negative data is still data. <laughs> and uh, a, and it just causes you to change the way you see things. I mean, we do that all the time in archaeology. So I don't know that there's anything, at, the, at least at this point, that would cause me and, uh, and others to question but, um, or even to let go of our faith. But, I mean, it happens to people all the time. They just stop. So, you know, I don't know.
6: Yeah. And I, I mean, Sonia's is on to a good point. The null hypothesis is still part of the hypothesis if we're mm-hmm. adhering to positivist scientific frameworks. And uh, I think that no matter what our religious faith or ideological background is for each of us, you know, if we were to find something that challenged everything that we had learned, then it is our responsibility as good scientists not just as believers or non-believers, whatever that is. It's our responsibility as good scientists to work that into the scientific process and retool the whole hypothesis, you know, restructure this, the research question, whatever needs to happen to address the data that we collect.
5: Yeah, so oh, if, yeah, if Paul wasn't in Corinth, maybe he was in the town right next to it. And people were <laughs> like, oh, we'll just call it Corinth.
6: <laughs>
4: yeah, I picked a bad example because I think there's pretty pretty good evidence Paul was there in Corinth, but there but there isn't any. There's I don't think I can't think of any archaeological evidence that, that puts him there. But uh, there's plenty of other documentary and and later evidence that uh, that he was there. But so I was just trying to reach and trying to find something.
1: <laughs> nice. Well, I think that's a good point. A uh, good place to end this on. We could probably go go on all day. And in fact, I even had some other things i was thinking about but um we're gonna end that for now thank you matt and belinda for coming on and uh and for being being good sports about this i think we had a really good uh conversation about this so thanks a lot
4: thank you yes thank you guys i enjoyed it
1: That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Podcast. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for the episode. You can also email me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag CRMARCpodcast or you can tag at ARCpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to the show wherever you saw it. If you share CRM archaeology related items on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else for that matter, be sure to use the hashtag #CRMARC so the community can see and comment. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Also, please consider donating to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Your donations help fund our bandwidth and contribute to our editing costs. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Bye.
5: Bye.
6: (laughs) Bye-bye.
5: Bye. Bye. Bye.
2: Bye.
6: (laughs) There it is.
1: Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just 7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com/members for more info.